There is a film that is more than a film, it's an experience. It runs for nine and a half hours, it's called Shoah. I say this simply because no doubt you listeners have heard of this work. Claude Lanzmann is the director, the guide, the man responsible for this. It's simply dealing with memory, memory of that which we call the Holocaust. Shoah is a Hebrew word. That specifically means Mr. Lanzmann, who made this film. Shoah means something else, not Holocaust. It means annihilation, doesn't it? Shoah, Shoah means, uh, in Hebrew, uh, disaster, catastrophe, uh, tempest, uh, uh, absolute uh, destruction, annihilation, without the religious connotation of the word uh, Holocaust. You know, one offers a lamb in a uh, Holocaust, uh, but uh, I don't think that the Jews were killed uh, in such a way. And uh, Shoah is a mysterious name. Yeah, we know that there have been scores of films and documentaries and archival works dealing with the horror itself, bodies like cordwood, what's happened, pyres of burnt bodies. We know this. You have done something else. There isn't one piece of old footage. It's simply you seeing a variety of people, Jews who survived, uh, German bureaucrats who were there at the various death camps, Treblinka, Auschwitz, Chelmno, various camps, uh, Polish peasants who witnesses, all variety of people are there. In your case, it's simply evoking a memory. I suppose we've got to ask you how you did that. How is the key word, isn't it? Not why, but how. Well, uh, I would not say it is memory. I would not say. The film is not done with memory. The film is not done with uh, souvenir, uh, because uh, the souvenirs are, are weak, in my opinion. They are full of uh, holes, and uh, it is not what I wanted to achieve. Uh, the film uh, uh, abolishes, destroys completely uh, the distance between the past uh, and the present. And the people who are in the film, uh, in order to remember, had to pay the highest price. This means to relieve, you know. And it is the reason why when they talk, they always shift, uh, even in their syntax, from the past to the present. They start a sentence saying, it was, and suddenly they stop and they say, it is. Very, very painful, you know. The, the whole film is uh, is uh, is like this, and the, the film uh, uh, has to be seen as I did it, in one way, in a kind of uh, hallucinatory way, because for me, when I was doing it, the distance between the past and the present was completely abolished. When I saw for the first time in Poland, when I discovered that there is still a railway station called Treblinka with the sign Treblinka. Suddenly, the, the shock for me was extraordinary. The confrontation between uh, my theoretical knowledge, even my legendary knowledge, and the reality of the place, 
which didn't change as a matter of, of course, because uh, the station of Treblinka is the same, the railway lines are exactly the same, and uh, I started to become very vi violent in one way, because uh, there are in this film very violent acts of cinema, you know. You know, I, I said memory almost as a matter of reflex. Hallucinatory probably is the word I should have thought of and said, because in watching it, we see you and okay, hear you, as well as the person to whom you're talking, who relives, not remembers, relives. Myself, too, yes. And yourself, too. I, you're I mean, a participant. I am a participant. I was never there. I was never in a, an extermination camp. I was not uh, uh, deported. Uh, and nobody in my near family was. But uh, even today, the film remains uh, mysterious for myself, in spite of the fact that I, I know every second, every word of this film, every image of this film. But for instance, there are things which I have done that are difficult for me to understand why I did them. I give you an example. I am, for instance, in the railway station of Sobibor in Poland, which is a, a place of nowhere, a nothingness. It is just uh, two, one single railway line uh, in the middle of a, a gigantic, very beautiful forest, as a matter of fact. Okay, I am talking with a Pole who was at the time in 1942 uh, assistant uh, pointsman uh, at the station. And I start to ask him, tell me, where was uh, the limit of the camp? Where did the camp uh, start? He told me, I will show you. And he, he makes 10 meters with me and he says, uh, here there was a, a palisade a fence, and there was another one here. Okay, but this is an imaginary palisade. There is nothing left of this. And I start to walk with him and to cross this uh, imaginary line. And I say, okay, here we are inside the camp, and here we retreat 10 meters, we are outside. Okay. What pushed me to do this, you know, and to, to make this kind of, uh, of... The film is not at all an idealistic film. It's a film of a topograph, of a geograph, as Kafka would say of an arpenteur. I don't know the word in English. Uh, uh, man who takes measures, you know. The Holocaust was true for me. The Holocaust was true in this respect, you know, in the in the very details. The details, something in my mind, as you're talking, you, you mentioned topography and details. So we come to, That's what I saw. It, was a, it almost seemed like an idyllic scene at times. We saw forests, where the big Treblinka leading to it. When you spoke to the railroad engineer, the man who was the engineer of the trains that carried the Jews to Treblinka, who had to get drunk, they gave him vodka to get him drunk, so yes, the smell did. and everything. But we don't see, we see a train, you, re, you relive, recreate, he's on it. But we see leaves and grass as it is today, no doubt. Virgilian landscapes. Yeah. And so we, we see this, we see almost pastoral, yes, pastoral landscapes. Absolutely. But 
that was the scene of all these horrors. And so you become part of it as you go along. You're like a Dante, and this guy's your Virgil, in a way. Both. So this is, this is what we... So therefore, something happens to the audience, of the viewer watching this work. But the film lies, the film is between these pastoral landscapes and the words which are said. The film is in between, you know. And the, this is a film which uh, gives place to the imagination of the viewer. The imagination of the viewer is really at work, and uh, non-stop. And all the people who have seen the film say, I got uh, many, many uh, letters of people. They say that uh, they go on thinking long after they have seen the film, you know. And they say that the film changed them completely. You mentioned the word earlier, Mr. Lanzmann, Claude Lanzmann, who was the man who made the film. You spoke of details. Now, you're not asking, why did you do this? You asked, how did you do it? Tell me how you did it. How many, how many people in those gas chambers was, how did it work? Explain it in detail. How were they gassed? Was it from the exhaust or was it cyclone gas? How did it work? And that, of course, makes it something. I think there is uh, more truth. Uh, you know, I was always, during the making of this film, uh, shaking uh, or shaked by the truth. Uh, you know, you have two ways to deal with this. You have to start with uh, the big questions, which are always the questions of the why did it happen. And uh, I think there is no proper answer for this if you start to put the questions in this way, because uh, you can uh, start to think about the, what is man, what is uh, evil, what is... Uh, I am not very much interested in this. Hmm? And anyhow, I, I, I never thought about uh, dealing uh, with the sub subject uh, in such a way. But the other way around, the question of the how. How? I think if you start really to ask how relentlessly, hmm, uh, the answer to the why is absolutely included uh, in the how. And you know what Spinoza says, uh, uh, in Latin, verum index sui. This means the truth indicates uh, oneself. Uh, forgive my bad Not uh, okay. English. Forgive well, my non-knowledge of Latin, but go ahead. When I asked to the Polish uh, locomotive engineer, uh, well, you, are, you are arrive inside the Treblinka extermination camp at the ramp, and you have... Uh, 20 wagons behind your locomotive because the trains were splitted in parts of uh, 10, 12, 15, sometimes 20 wagons. He answers me, no, I have not the wagons behind me. I have the wagons be before me. I push them. I don't pull them. I started to shake. This was a seal of truth. And there is more truth in this uh, trivial confirmation you know, that in any kind of uh, 
idealistic uh, reflection uh, or metaphysical reflection Absolute. or theological Absolute. reflection. So when you ask the driver of the van, the gas van, how did you gas the people in the chamber? Yes, where was well, the, I the exhaust, exhaust pipe? Explain, exactly. show me how you did it. Exactly. And in that detail, seemingly trivial, comes boom, the explosion. Yes, this is an explosion. But it went, uh, it goes further because in order to have my protagonist, the Jewish survivors, to relieve the things, what happened uh, to them, first of all, they are not the average kind of uh, survivor. They are the people who worked in the special work details uh, in the Zonderkommando at the gas chambers and who have been the direct witness of the death of the whole people, of the Jewish people. Okay, and I knew that this would be extremely difficult for them and very painful because they are uh, splitted. Uh, they feel that they have the duty to talk because uh, if they don't talk now, uh, uh, you know, you when will it happen? And they are just a handful. And in another way, they are, uh, it's horribly difficult for them. And for instance, the scene with uh, with the barber, the barber who, for ten days, cuts the hair of the Jewish woman inside the gas chamber, uh, as such, uh, in uh, Treblinka. He was a barber by profession, okay. And after the war, Abraham Bamba. Yes, he, and he's a wonderful man. I love him and I admire him. Uh, and after the war, he, he was a barber too. Uh, and, but when I shot with him, he was a retired barber. And I decided to rent a barber shop. Hmm. It's outside Tel Aviv. Uh, yes, in the, in the outskirts of Tel, Tel Aviv in uh, Holland. Uh, I, I asked him if he would agree. I decided to, he said yes. I decided to rent a barber shop and the scene is staged, you know. It is one of the reasons I, I hate uh, the word documentary about this film because it is uh, the only way to deal with the Holocaust, the way I have done. It's not documentary. It's not fiction or not documentary. It's something else. It's a fiction of reality. Uh, okay, and I start... He has two, two ways of talking. He starts with a complete neutral voice, you know, objective voice, and uh, he says the truth, but uh, the truth is not, uh, has no flesh, you know, uh, is not uh, incarnated. And suddenly, because we are in a barber shop, and there are mirrors in the barber shop, I ask him the most uh, silly question, were there mirrors? inside the gas chamber. Of course, I knew that there were no mirrors. All right. And I asked him, okay, now show me. How did you do? Try to imitate. And uh, every uh, feeling is a monstration, but the other way around, every monstration is feeling. And it is when he starts to imitate how he used to cut the hair, not with, he didn't shave the woman, but he cut with scissors. All right. 
and uh, he is making the ge gestures, you know. Uh, he is in a... I don't know the word in English. In French, he is in the pratique, you know, uh, in a kind of... Uh, in the specific, in the particular. Yes, in the particular, but he does the thing. Yeah. He acts, you know, and every protagonist <coughs> of the film becomes an actor in one so way. So this is the acting. reliving. Okay, and suddenly, he's, he, there are two parts in this scene. But in the second part of the scene, he doesn't say different things. He says them differently. Hmm? He says the same things differently. And suddenly, he breaks. And this is again the seal of truth. That scene, he is reliving, as you say, not remembering, but reliving. reliving. Therefore, to, he's to, like, to, to remember is to be like I am in front of you now yeah. with a uh, jacket and a tie, yeah. you know, and to, to remember the past. There is no, no past. No. So he says, I can't, because he's telling about this friend of his yes. who was also a barber, and into the chamber comes this friend's his wife, wife and child. And sister. And sister. And he's got to cut her hair from the last time he's going to see them. And he can't tell them they're going to be guests. He cannot. And so you're asking him, uh, he says, I can't continue. The barber, Bamba, because you staged this barbershop. We have all the customers there were called and somebody tries to get into the door and he's cutting. He said, because he's reliving it, not remembering it. Then when I can't, it's too horrible. You say, you, Clemens, you have to do it. We hear your voice. We see, you know it. He says, I won't be able to do it. But you have to do it. I know it's very hard. I know when I apologize. Don't make me go on. Please, we must go on. And so we got you in this thing saying, and I, I was thinking if I were doing, would I quit there? Because I haven't got your nerve. So I don't have no, your dedication. You got to get the truth out. No matter what, you got to get the truth out. And that's what this is. No matter how painful it was to him. But I was very brotherly with him. I mean, this was our common, common task, our common duty. And anyway, there are others in the field. One can see sometimes my, my hand. You know, I am holding them. Yeah. Like, a, like a doctor, or like yeah. a, a brother. I am holding them to help them to to talk. You know, yeah. it's a kind of a psychoanalytic process. Yeah. You know. You, there's so much of you, by the way, so much of you in it. This, I find this incredibly fascinating. And you should be in it because you are reliving it too. Sometimes you're sardonic. I, 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 Sometimes I, I, someone says, oh, well, they, they, took, they didn't really kill the child just then. And you say, I'm, it's not exact. You're saying, oh, how very compassionate of them. That was very thoughtful, you know. You, you bring in your sardonic when you feel like at a certain moment, you see. Yeah. I had to go myself, you know, of course, uh, I was never in a gas chamber. Uh, I never experienced what the, the, these people experienced. But I had to go through a different mental experience, you know, mm -hmm. and to suffer in my own way. And I did, as a matter of fact. When I was shooting in uh, Sobibor or in uh, Birkenau by, uh, uh, in bitter cold, the camera was even freezing, you know, we couldn't use it anymore. We had to warm uh, the camera under snow tempest. And when I was making myself the last journey of the Jews 
in this destroyed uh, crematorium two or three in uh, Birkenau, or when I was uh, making the last journey of the Jews from the village of Helmno till the mass graves where they were killed in gas vans, you know. Uh, well, it was necessary to go through a kind of allegoric suffering. The film is like a gigantic metaphor, you know, or a gigantic allegory. It also has silences. You see, the, 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 that station master at Sobibor, the man who relives it to you, he's let me show you the path that the train took, or wherever it was. He's, yes, what gets you? What is it that most mesmerized you? He said, the silence that followed. So silence is part of you, the silences in your film. Oh yes, there is a lot of silence. And I think uh, uh, this is a difficulty with the whole Holocaust. One has to talk and one has to be silent uh, at the same moment. You're not afraid of these long pauses because somehow, as we see that person and you there, and the interpreter there, but that person is at that moment in 1943-42. This is the reliving you're talking about, not the memory I misinterpreted mm. earlier. But there are so many scenes or moments that are, to me are so indelible throughout, but certain ones, you gotta tell how you do this. Even a detail, how you worked on it. You knew there was a chauffeur to a certain commandant in one of those camps, yes. a chauffeur. And you knew somebody who was working in a Munich Bierstube as a bartender. Well, explain how you got, at least to get him into your film, if even briefly, what you had to do to do that. Well, I knew that he was working uh, at this place since a long time. I knew that uh, all the people uh, and the owner, too, knew exactly who he was. I knew, I knew that they were uh, protecting him. And because at the time I was not naive anymore, I mean, I was uh, an experienced man in uh, dealing with uh, Germany and dealing with uh, Nazi. All right, and I wanted to show through this man that when starts uh, to uh, interview them openly, they never talk. One has to trick them, all right? Well, I tricked him in order to show that they don't talk this one particularly. Uh, I wrote to the uh, owner of this place and I said that I was making a reportage uh, for the French TV about uh, Bavaria, that uh, Bavaria means beer, that beer means uh, his place, and that I wanted to shoot uh, at his place. A documentary about a beer hall. Yes, and they agreed, and I, came, and I shot for two days passing in front of the bartender and ignoring him completely, just uh, in order not to avoid his, uh, his doubts, you know. And I spent uh, two days shooting uh, pigs, legs, or uh, heads uh, in the kitchen, on full basins of uh, sauerkraut. And I arrived to him the, at the very last minute. And I knew that at the very moment I would unmask myself, uh, everybody would fall on me. 
and that we would have to retreat immediately, and the things were prepared like a military operation, you know, because uh, I had been caught and already. So just on as the, you're about, because they're going to kick you out or maybe even beat you up. But Who it's knows? what they did. Yeah. But you got the scene just before you leave, after two days of shooting, you're saying, hey, do you see this picture? And it's the Commandant Worth. Oh, yes, of a certain camp. And this guy was there. He's, no. Earlier he was shy. He's as though not suspected. He was though he was uh, he suspected something uh, fishy, you know. But your point, I I assume, is whole thing is to show this is the way the man is today. And you may ask, how many quarts of beer do you sell? I won't talk. And suddenly, so the very nature of his life was affected. Suddenly he puts his glasses. Yeah. In order to protect himself. Yeah. With his glasses, you know. It's, uh, I'm thinking about the details, the effort you went through to find one piece of truth. In this case, how his very life, silence and fear and furtiveness has come out of this, even on other subjects. So that was your point there. Two days to shoot to get that. But nonetheless, I remember that scene so vividly. And well, I was saying how courageous this guy is, how bold <laughs> Claude Lanceman is to do this. And there was two days of preparation. So I suppose we can't talk about this film without another scene. We're coming to bureaucracy in a moment, administration, which is to me what the film is really about, efficiency and technique. But something else, another scene that is absolutely one that has to be mentioned. It's in the Polish village, and one of the survivors, Simon, one of the two survivors of 400,000. Yes. The boy, he was the little boy who sang the songs and the... German soldiers took a fancy to him. Yes. And suddenly he is returned. How did you work that out in front of this church? There are Polish villagers who remember him. Why don't you set that scene? Well, uh, first of all, uh, what I should say, the village is not, uh, it's a very special one. The village is uh, Helmno, where they have killed with uh, gas vans 400,000 Jews. Two survivors. And there are only two survivors. Okay. And one was a boy of 13. He was uh, assigned to a working special detail. And he was, uh, he used to walk in this village with uh, his uh, uncles in chains, you know, in order that he couldn't escape. And all the people of the village knew him. The Poles uh, and the Germans too, because uh, they were Germans who were living there. Because this part of Poland had been... Uh, uh, Germanized and annexed to the to the Reich, and uh, I, I met this man uh, in Israel where he lives, and uh, he told me his story. But it was very difficult because it was very confused and confusing for myself, and I had not been at the place on the spot yet, and uh, I decided to go there alone. And uh, I had always, this was uh, very important, to hear what the people had to say and to see the places. For instance, uh, if you go to Auschwitz today without knowledge, it's meaningless. And if you have the knowledge without having been to Auschwitz, it's uh, meaningless too. The two things have to be together, you know. all right, I convinced the man to return with me to the place of his death because one has to, to say that uh, 
uh, in the very last day of the existence of this camp, the 30 remaining uh, Jews in the working squad had all been killed with a bullet in the neck, and this young man too. But the bullet missed the vital brain centers, and he, he didn't die, and he was saved two days later when the Red Army, uh, the Soviet Army, arrived. Well, and he returned there with me, and all the villagers remembered him, remembered his voice because he used to sing, and there are two parts in this scene too. There is a, they are in front of the church, and it is the day of the celebration of the, of the Virgin Mary. And in the first part, they are happy to see him, and they talk about him. And suddenly, you have the procession, you know, which starts to get out from the church, the Catholic procession. And uh, I ask to these people, but why all this story happened to the, to the Jews? And suddenly, because of the procession, all the old stereotypes of the anti-Semitism come back with forceful, you know, forcefully, and they forget him. He's in the middle of them. He's simply forgotten, and they explode in present anti-Semitism. You know, and it is a film where nobody meets anybody, you know, and this is one of the reasons the construction of the film is uh, circular, you know, these are really the circles of the inferno, and uh, the Nazi cannot meet the, meet the Jews, it would be obscene, you know, they are not former war fighters who shake their hand 40 years later, it would be... Not former antagonists, no, they no. are simply villagers. No. And I'm talking about the Jews and the Nazis, too. And Nobody meets anybody, you know, and the film is based entirely on corroboration. It is so incredible a scene, as you, as, as you describe it. Now, you say, seeing it, of course. There's Simon in the center. They remember him fondly, the voice, the survivor, this young Jew boy, his 13-year-old kid, and here's this man years later, the village's older women. And then, as the procession comes, they start talking, oh, why did it happen? They call on one of the members, the man. It says, expiation. Yes. Because they killed Christ. Yes. And so that comes out. And then, by the way, I didn't say it, he says. A rabbi said it. Yes, yes. Do you yes. understand? I didn't say it. And so that comes out, as well as certain other aspects of women feeling about the Jewish women being pretty. There's another scene. And nice, and the Poles liked them because they never did any work. Yes. They had money and no work. Yes. So all that, by the way, I know this has caused quite a furore in Warsaw, uh, some comment, because there, there was a scene from it, from this there. We know also there were Poles who risked their lives, just individual Poles did, and in the locomotive engineer and the station master, I find this feeling of uh, sorrow. I, I love the locomotive engineer. I love this man. Yeah. He's a very human man. Yeah. He has still open wounds. Yes. He, was a, he was wonderful to me, this man. And I, I think, I am yes. sure, that one can feel this in the film. And even know. that couple sitting at the doorway of that house. Yes. That man remembered them. You see, so again, we come to individuals. In contrast to Czeslaw Borovi, yes. who said, uh, well, if somebody cut his finger, it didn't hurt me any. We're doing well, right. but it is a profound thinking. It is, it is. Uh, what he says is exactly what the British philosopher David Hume says. 
he says, Hume says exactly the thing, and it is true. Yeah. If uh, I cut my finger, you don't suffer. Yeah. You were talking to different uh, German soldiers, as well as the wife of a teacher, uh, of a Nazi teacher who moved to, was it Helmno? In Helmno, yeah. yes. <laughs> oh, with her. Just a quick reference. You said, do you know how many were killed? She's 40, was it 40,000? No, uh, 400. I knew there was a four in there somewhere. Yes, yes. So that she was sure of the four. There was, she knew there was a four there somewhere. Yes, she was that, sure only of the four. Yeah. But she didn't remember if no. it had been 40,000 or 400,000. She also remembers the difficulty she had, No, not enough privies. Yes. And it was primitive. And she remembers that those difficulties which is kind of a whimsical, biting, ironic sequence. She's a horrible woman. Yeah, but now we... But the way she said it, though, casually. So now we come to uh, Walter Stier and Suchomo, two uh, SS officers who were there in the various camps. One was in charge of the trains. Let's save the trains, yes. the tourist trains no. for later, because that's a kicker. Suchomo, this guy... Uh, he was had difficulties, and you wanted him to talk. You also, you also deceived him. Yes, I did. Explain that, and then tell about. If you... Listen, it is a really a long story. I had to to strike a kind of a personal relationship with him, but anyhow, he would not agree to be filmed. He would agree to to talk with me, uh, but I had to trick him like uh, the other uh, Nazi. Because uh, one has to understand that every Nazi who is in the film is a miracle. Because the real perpetrators, the real killers, the people who have some, something to say, in principle, never talk, and of course, never agree to be filmed. And even if they had trials, during their trials, they never talk. They just denied, or just, they just said, we obeyed the order. And I decided that uh, there are the technical way I used to uh, to film him, to trick him, okay? But this is, one can see this in the film. It's uh, clearly uh, shown. Uh, but this was not the real point. The real point was to talk with him and to have his, uh, his témoignage. He is yeah. a very no, important you know, witness. Someone could be picking and say, you shouldn't have deceived him. The answer is, to me, you had a certain truth to tell out, a historic truth, yes. to get to an get to an audience at large. That was it. You tell you show us how you did it. You have the guys in the van down below taping it. Yes. You you show us indeed how. I, 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 yes, proudly. But what comes out with him though is something else coming out of the substance of the conversation. That was a question of technique. How can you get so many bodies gassed at that time? That became a problem in administration in engineering, didn't it? This oh, became yeah. the big thing. They had to invent. They were pioneers, because at the beginning they were, were not ready. They wanted to kill, but they were not ready. They had to invent the, the method, you know. And one of the most uh, shattering things for me when he talked to me was to, to discover precisely that they were not ready, that they had at the beginning of Treblinka too many corpses they couldn't get rid of, and too many alive, Jews alive, that they had not the means to kill, because the gas chambers were uh, functioning day and night, 
and they could not handle the Lord. The Jews had to wait two or three days, their turn to be killed. Inside Treblinka, hearing the noise of the motor of the gas chambers, hearing the people uh, crying, screaming, and uh, uh, betting inside the, the gas chamber, it was a pure hell. But I succeeded to have him talk because I decided to avoid any kind of moral discussion, of moral issue with him, and to be at a kind of a level level of a, a equality with him to discuss technique. How? Again, how? How? How did you do? How many meters? How long? And so on. Describe me the, the funnel that the Jews took just before entering the gas chamber. How did they go? Were they whipped? Were they not whipped? And so on and so on. Okay, and don't forget, uh, he's... Uh, this was his best time in life. He was young, he was active, and he has a kind of pride talking with me about this. And I had made my homework. I knew many things, you know. And, uh, okay, in one way we could share the knowledge, you know. This is the way I succeeded to have him talk. He was doing it, what he was doing, of course, was killing scores of thousands, but it wasn't that. It was he was doing it efficiently. Well, yes, this absolutely. is a horror, because this is what you do. And this means by reliving a horror. How? Just as you asked Bamba for the opposite reason, how did you cut the hair? And he breaks down from his point of view. Now you got the SS guy, Suchomel, which leads us to perhaps the most stunning of all the sequences and subjects. When he sings, too. And he sings, oh, he sings a song. That's right, there was an SS song. So the song sings. of Treblinka that the Jews had to learn on their arrival. The, the Jews, Jews had to learn the song, kill, too. Uh, right away, and they had to sing the, this horrible song, you know. Uh, but there are two things. Uh, Suhomel is a, uh, is a killer. He, he, he participated, he was inside the machinery of the killing. But there are others in the film who are the bureaucrats. Now, Walter Stier. Okay. Walter. Let's come to him. This deals with trains. Explain those tourist trains. He's the worst of all, in my opinion. He's the worst of all. He is what uh, one calls in German Schreibtisch uh, Fernbrecher, which is a, right. a bureaucrat the killer. The clerk. You yeah. know, a clerk killer. All right. And he was the chief of the Office 33 of the... Uh, German railways, of the Reich Railway, the office who organized the special trains, the Jewish trains, and one had, of course, to settle schedules, you know. If you have to ship uh, Jews from uh, Saloniki in Greece to Auschwitz or from uh, Westerborg in Holland to Treblinka, okay, you have to warn the stations and you have to insert the trains in the re regular, regular traffic. It is the reason why he was in charge of both traffics, regular traffic and special traffic, you know? These were special trains. Yes, yeah, they were special trains, yeah. okay? And after the war, he went on. It's like group tour. Yes, exactly. And they had a special prize. Yeah. A relocation, they were called. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. 
Han sie so sondel bei an official travel bureau. Yeah, you know? And so Walter St- Walter Steer, he he was the former head of the Reich Railways Department 33 of the Nazis. You never saw a train, you ask him. No. I was glued to my desk. We had so much said. work. Yes. Uh, How could I know? I so I, you didn't know. He didn't know about the end result. He says. But you know. he's a liar. Oh, I know. But the point is. How could I know if I got all this work to do? <laughs> you see, you know, and a small, uh, quick parenthetical comment, very quick. During the Watergate scandal, interviewed a certain guy named Jeb Magruder, a young guy, and he was involved, and he went to prison. But he said, I didn't know about this because I was too busy collecting money on the tele. I was involved with big things, collecting dough for the committee to re-elect the presidents. I didn't know what this other guy, Liddy, the others did, you see. And so that's a, in a very small way. But this is bureaucracy. This is a huge machinery. Yeah. All this uh, is not the, the, the product of the will of a bunch of gangsters, you know. It requires uh, the full participation of the, uh, of the administrative and bureaucratic apparatus of a great modern state. Yeah. You ask him, did you know that Treblinka meant extermination? Of course not. You didn't know. Good God, how could we know? I never went to Treblinka. I stayed in Krakow, in uh, Warsaw, glued to my desk. You were, I was strictly a bureaucrat. Yes. And I got to ask you, this is incredible, as you describe the train. Some people came from not just Polish Jews, the long discs you have a scene in Corfu. And the long trip, and they finally, it turns out the Jews paid for their own death trip at yes, the very end. of course, it was a self uh, I got to ask you a big process. question. We're talking about bureaucrats, we're talking about administration, efficiency. Do you think something like this could happen elsewhere? Uh, I think that the bureaucracy, uh, everything can happen with the bureaucratic process. Uh, I don't think that this will happen again in the same way because history never repeats oneself whatsoever, not like this. Uh, I think that it was uh, absolute, uh, and I I am sure that Shoah shows this uh, totally, that uh, it was a unique uh, event in the history of mankind. And one has to... One has to keep up with the specificity, you know, the things. I am against the fact to mix everything, you know. Uh, This is not the gulag. You have no gas chambers in the gulag, and you don't gas gas the children, you know. One has to be careful with the words, you know. And, uh, of course, you have other uh, massacres in uh, world history, but... uh, the extermination of the Jews as such, this slow, uh, patient, uh, step-by-step, bureaucratic destruction process. Mm. And it happened to <coughs> these particular people, too. Uh, has no precedent in history. And you say, has no precedent, it is unique, you speak of specificity. At the same time, earlier you were saying the nature, how a modern state with bureaucracy and technocrats, technicians, and efficiency can work. So not this way can it be repeated, but is it possibly another matter entirely different. But we have to come to something else, and that's uh, the, your, your colleague, the historian you call on, Raoul Hilberg, a number of times, the historian of the Holocaust. 
and he speaks of invention. That is, anti-Semitism is nothing new in the world. The banishment is nothing new. The, uh, the ghetto is not new. But there's something else that was invented. And the word was never... Euphemisms were used all the time. Euphemisms. That is not the actual word, death, but final solution. Other words were used. Relocation. That becomes yes, interesting. Yes, they, 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 uh, they had to destroy uh, uh, the language. In one way, the Jews were not destroyed because they simply didn't exist. It is what is uh, what appears uh, very clearly. They couldn't name what they were doing because uh, if they would have uh, named the things, they couldn't have done it. And it, in order to do it, they had to uh, to understand everything. You know, not not to say what yeah. they were doing. Not to say. Do the things. Yeah. Don't uh, describe. A, a memorandum came. A memo came from Himmler, or a memo came from Berlin, from the High Goering. And the memo from Goering. The memorandum said what? The memorandum does the not me say kill the Jews. No, the memorandum is the most astonishing thing uh, to read. It is a very short memorandum of uh, ten lines, and he he asks to Heydrich to proceed with the final solution of the Jewish question, but you, you cannot know what it is. You cannot know what it is. If you read this, it is not a written order. The word Jews, the word killing is not uh, pronounced, not at all. The Vanze Conference, the so-called conference of the final solution in 1942, there are uh, uh, 30 German bureaucrats, Nazi, who meet no, we have the protocols of this uh, conference. The word killing is never said. Everybody, Hilberg says very rightly, it is a, a meeting of minds. Everybody knows what the other one is talking about, but they don't need to go into details. So it's left for the local commandant. It is it's left for him. Everybody to, uh, invented its own final solution. Yeah. There was a Führer Wunsch, a Führer wish, a wish of Hitler. Hitler said, uh, we have to get rid of yeah. them. And everyone started to work. It is a reason, reason why in Helmno, they started very early in December 1941 with a very primitive system, the gas vans. But they went on with the gas vans in Helmno till January 45, when you had, in the same time, in Auschwitz, the gigantic death factories. Much you more know? sophisticated. Much more sophisticated ah. and much more efficient. But even there, uh, they had real problems with uh, efficiency. Yeah. Because when they had to kill in uh, uh, May on June 1944, uh, 550,000 Hungarian Jews, uh, the ovens, of the crematoriums could not handle the load, too. And uh, they were overworked. They just exploded. So they had to open uh, yeah. a huge uh, mass graves where they burned the corpses. So it became know. a problem of efficiency yes. and administration this problem. and technique. And this is what we're but talking the whole, about. All the German uh, ministries have been involved in this. For instance, if you take uh, uh, the question of the, the retreats, the, the, the pensions, you know. Many Jews were, uh, um, were old Jews. 
and they were pensioned, you know. All right, they were killed, but nobody said that they were killed. And, but everybody knew. The Ministry of Finance knew that they were killed. The Ministry of Justice knew. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Who will get the money of these killed Jews because they are not killed? They are killed, but they are not killed. Yeah. And we have to pay the pensions. So there's a problem there. And there, 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 there are the yeah. terrible conflicts, yeah. Yeah. you know. You know, as you're you're talking, I asked that question. I'm not going to repeat it. Could it happen elsewhere? Not this. As you pointed out, of course not in the identical way. Things are wholly different. That's why the specifics. But could something of this nature happen? And the subject on our mind as we're talking is technique, administration, memoranda. These are very familiar phrases in all the societies of a modern state today. And so this is what we're talking about. So if I had to ask you, Claude Lanzmann, whose remarkable work this is, what do you leave us? What If there's one thing you want to leave viewers with, an audience with, what would that be? Well, uh, I would like to say this. Uh, uh, when, when I was in uh, Birkenau, the, the, the crematorium have been... Uh, destroyed, exploded by the Nazis themselves in uh, October 1944 in order to eradicate the traces, you know. But uh, the ruins are there. And the crematorium two and three, uh, the undressing room and the gas chambers were underground. And you have still the the staircase which were leading to uh, to this undressing room and to the gas chamber, which was perpendicular to the undressing room. I, I will always remember my first shock. I was uh, uh, on this uh, staircase and thinking that uh, millions of my brothers went through the same uh, staircase. Uh, and I was uh, saying to myself, here, it was too late. Nothing could be done. Uh, they should have been saved uh, much earlier and elsewhere, you know. And uh, it is the reason why I have made the film, in order uh, that everybody is able to to relieve and to revive this I didn't want them to be dead alone. I had to die with them in my own way. This was my this was my mission, and uh, I think uh, everybody has to do the same. It's what I. This is my answer to your question. Hard one. Thank you very much.